Thank you, Creative Ministry, for that sermon bumper. I'm Dan. I'm the campus pastor here at Fullerton, and it's my privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. The text this morning is in Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. Please give your full, undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, as we open up your word, would you open up our minds and our hearts? Occupy our thoughts with heavenly things this morning, and Holy Spirit, would you help us to comprehend and to to contemplate the gospel and to meet Jesus this morning in the scriptures? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Randy Newman is a Christian author and also a lecturer at the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C., but he didn't grow up a Christian. He actually grew up a Jew, and he describes his upbringing, and he says that for whatever reason, he doesn't know why, but he took Judaism more seriously than anyone else in his family. And at the age of 15, he decided that on the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur, he was going to obey every commandment and do everything by the book. You're not supposed to ride in a car, you're supposed to fast, and you're supposed to confess your sin on that day. And so on Yom Kippur, he walked two miles to the synagogue with the hopes of this, that God wouldn't feel so distant as he had the previous years up until that point. So he goes to the synagogue on Yom Kippur. He confesses every sin in the liturgy. And then at sunset, he's walking home. And it didn't work. He says he didn't feel any closer to God than he had the previous 24 hours. And as he's walking, he says he looks down at his shoes. And he sees that he's wearing leather shoes. He says, oh, no. He remembers that back when he was in Hebrew school, they taught him, you don't wear leather shoes on Yom Kippur. And he says this, I wrestled with the notion that my shoes were the reason for my lack of connection with God. If only I'd worn the right shoes, God wouldn't seem so alien to me. We're in a series, Religion versus the Gospel. Religion makes it about the shoes. Maybe you chuckle when you hear that story and you think, what a silly teenager. And maybe you think no one in the church would ever believe that the kinds of shoes that we wear has anything to do with our relationship with God or us being right with God or us going to heaven. And we think that is so foolish. But what do you make it about? You may not make it about your shoes, but do you make it about church attendance? 
that your church attendance or your streak of church attendance has something to do with making you right with God? Or how much you give? Or how much you serve? Or all the things that you don't do, actually, that other people are doing, you compare yourself to them and it gives you confidence. This is making me right with God. And so I I, I think you're right. I don't think there's really anyone in the church or anyone who grew up in the church who would believe that our shoes has anything to do with making us right with God. But although we may not make it about our shoes, we'll make it about our socks. We'll just make it about something else that we don't think is so silly and that we take seriously and we actually believe is contributing to our salvation or adding to our relationship with God. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Galatia. Why? Because these Christians, they believe their shoes mattered. Well, actually not their shoes. The issue was circumcision. But whether it's your shoes or your socks or circumcision, the principle was the same, that what you did made you right with God. And if you read the letter to the churches in Galatia, and I encourage you to do that, you get a sense that Paul is confused and he is troubled and he's also kind of freaking out here. He says, who has bewitched you? He thinks that the Christians are under some kind of spell for them to believe something like circumcision making you right with God. I think you would say the same thing to someone who said, my shoes make me right with God. You would say, who has bewitched you? What are you thinking? You must be out of your mind. What does this mean for us? It means that the Christians back then, and I believe even Christians today, forget that our shoes don't matter. We have other things in our lives that we honestly believe is contributing to our salvation and making us right with God. But only Christ makes us right with God. Paul, in this letter, he wants to defend a very important theological topic, which is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is enough. The first point this morning is Christ is sufficient for our salvation. Salvador Mundi is a painting by Leonardo da Vinci. It was sold at auction for $450 million back in 2017, breaking the record for the most expensive painting sold at public auction. Imagine that you took a paintbrush and some paint and you started walking towards that painting. What would happen? Security would tackle you and you'd probably get tased. People would start freaking out. Paul is freaking out here in this letter. He's writing this and he's freaking out because people, it's like they have a paintbrush and paint and walking towards the gospel and they're about to ruin it and mess it all up. What is the gospel? The gospel teaches us that there is a God and he is perfect. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is good. He is loving. He is holy And he is righteous. And that this God created everything, including humanity, for his glory. And it was all originally good, including humanity. 
However, due to Adam and Eve's sin, everyone has fallen into sin. Without exception, we share in Adam's guilt. And that although everyone still bears the image of God, and so we uphold their dignity, we also believe that everyone has fallen, therefore we affirm their depravity. So because of their dignity, they're still creating the image of God. They're still very capable and creative and inventive. They can do so much, accomplish so much, achieve so much, but because of their depravity, the one thing they cannot accomplish, they're incapable of doing is making themselves right with God and gaining access into heaven based on their own merit. That is an impossibility. But of course, if we focus on the dignity and forget about the depravity, we applaud mankind and we think we can do anything. And a lot we can do. But we cannot gain access to heaven. Left to ourselves, without Jesus Christ, all we would do is add sin upon sin upon sin, upon sin, and then we will stand before God and we would be judged and condemned for all of that sin that we have committed. And we would go to hell for eternity. And that is God's just, fair wrath because he is holy. That is the fate for everyone, that we would all stand before God. But God did not leave us to ourselves. There is good news in the gospel. The gospel announces that the very God we offended with our sin is the very same God who offers his son to deal with our sin. And Jesus did just that in his perfect living and in his dying and in his rising from the dead. Paul knew that Jesus is everything. He is sufficient for our salvation, which is why in verse 14 he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel announces that salvation, it's a free gift, friends. It is by God's grace that we are saved. If we would repent and say, I am a sinner. I'm not good enough. I'm capable, but I am depraved. I can do a lot in this world, but the one thing I cannot do is get right with God. And he is the one person that may not be impressed with my accolades and achievements. And that's not going to count for anything when I stand before him. If I don't boast in Christ alone, I have nothing to boast in. Again, what would happen if you added, successfully added paint to that painting? What would happen? Well, technically you would be a co-artist next to da Vinci's name, would be your name. You contributed to this painting. And anything you contribute actually will devalue the painting. Your contribution would be a subtraction. No one would purchase that painting at public auction for $450 million anymore. When we add to the gospel, circumcision, church attendance, giving, tithing, I serve, I don't do this, and I do that. We're trying to add to the gospel, and that turns the gospel into a religion it was never meant to be. Adding our works to the gospel always ruins the gospel. Paul is so unsettled 
that he says earlier in this letter. He says, I wish those who are teaching circumcision is necessary for salvation. He says, I wish those people would emasculate themselves. What is on the line here? Everlasting life. Either in heaven or in hell. There's nothing more important in your life than this issue. And I don't doubt that I'm sure you have a lot going on, a lot of very important things going on. Can I remind you this morning, there's nothing more important than eternity and where you will be then. Paul's problem with circumcision isn't with circumcision itself, He actually had Timothy, one of his co-laborers in the gospel, circumcised. And you would think, isn't that a contradiction? Why would Paul have Timothy circumcised if he's saying circumcision doesn't matter? Yes, Paul would say circumcision has nothing to do with your salvation. Paul had Timothy circumcised in order to contextualize to the Jews he was trying to reach with the gospel. The same way missionaries will contextualize and learn the culture and how they dress and what they eat in order to relate to them. But when it comes to our salvation, circumcision means nothing. In verse 15, read here. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He's saying it doesn't matter. But if you attach meaning to it, the kind of meaning that makes it necessary for salvation, then we have a problem. Paul's problem wasn't with the surgical procedure of circumcision. It was with the principle making this procedure a prerequisite for salvation it was a condition now here's the problem with conditions the problem with conditions is that they are contributions the gospel does not require us to contribute anything to our salvation why is that well the first reason i shared earlier we have nothing to contribute We are fallen in our sin. There is nothing that we can do that pleases God. That says, that makes God say, wow, good job. That's really good. I am impressed. I think you should go to heaven. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he puts it well. He says, how can I buy for a penny what costs a million dollars? Anyone apart from Christ trying to earn or purchase their salvation through good works, you're trying to buy for a penny what costs a million dollars. You can't afford it. None of us can. But this should be a relief. You shouldn't tremble. You shouldn't be afraid. This should be a huge relief because the gospel says, Jesus who was rich became poor so that in his poverty, we could become rich. We don't have to afford it actually because Jesus paid the price. The gospel is good news. That if we would rest and rely and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, we would be saved. If we contributed something, there would be something to boast about. If there is anything that you're boasting about in terms of your own doing and you believe that is how you're going to be right with God and go to heaven, you have departed from the gospel. That is a departure from the good news and what the Bible teaches. Read with me here, Ephesians chapter 2. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The gospel is beautiful because it says you don't have to do anything because you couldn't do anything. Rest and rely on Jesus alone. And it's beautiful for a second reason that sometimes we may overlook. God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. It's so important we get the gospel right because it affects our worship and our living and our following and our devotion and our interest to meet God in the word and to pray and to evangelize. When we begin to realize God really did everything and I did nothing and I don't deserve this and yet Jesus did everything I could not do. We grow in joy and gratitude and we begin to want to live for him and to glorify him all of the more. It's important that we know that being a good parent, I think we have some excellent parents here, being a good neighbor, being a good employee, being a good citizen, tithing, giving, serving, attending. Do you think that in the end, it's going to count for something? I think we think that way sometimes. We think in the end, that's got to count for something, right? God is reasonable. He can't not take any of those things into consideration. That would be kind of messed up. And I think for many, it's not just what they do, but what they don't do. I don't skip church. That's got to count for something. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't get drunk. I don't steal from the office. I don't sleep around. All of those things, that's got to count for something in the end. This morning, let's settle this matter once and for all. None of those things are going to matter. None of those things will be taken into consideration when you stand before God. Those are all non-factors when it comes to your salvation. I think there are people in the church who think that when they get to heaven, God will say something like, although I knew you never really repented and placed your faith in Jesus, Although I know you just went through the motions of Christianity in order to please your spouse or to save face. Although I know your Christianity was more about family culture rather than personal conviction. It was more about upbringing than actual belief. More about good behavior than the gospel. Although I know you never really believed in Jesus, I know how much you gave and I know how much you served and sacrificed. I saw how much you cared for and provided for and supported those in their times of crisis. I saw how you fought against racism and fought for equality. I saw how you adopted unwanted children, donated to disaster relief, used your vacation days to go on medical missions, and all of those things considered, although I know you never believed in Jesus, enter into my rest, good and faithful servant. I think there are people who think that that is how that conversation is going to go. That God may call you out on your unbelief 
or your nominal Christianity, which is you are just a Christian by name, going through the motions, having everyone else fooled around you, maybe yourself, serving, tithing, giving, banking on, hoping that God will take that into consideration and do what? Make an exception. Friends, there are no exceptions. If there were exceptions, then why did Jesus even have to come in the first place? Jesus is not only sufficient for our salvation, but he is absolutely necessary for our salvation. Every ounce of it. What does this mean for us? Don't boast in anything else except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Stop looking down at your shoes. Look up to Christ and him sacrificed and him risen, freely offered to you for salvation. And you don't have to go on laboring and worrying about whether or not you are saved. What you can have this morning is a beautiful teaching in the gospel And that is called assurance. You can be sure this morning that if you would repent and place your faith in Jesus, you are sure I'm going to heaven because that had nothing to do with my shoes or my works or my doing. During the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, the Pope's personal theologian, said this about the Protestant reformers, those who protested against the Roman Catholic Church and fought for the purity of the gospel. He said, this is the greatest of the Protestant heresies, assurance. They claim that assurance of salvation was a heresy. It's heretical, it's false teaching. That you can never be sure and that you have to do some things on your end to be sure that you can go to heaven. Martin Luther at that time, he was a monk and he said this. When I was a monk, I tried ever so hard to live up to the strict rules of my order. Whatever penances were enjoined upon me, I performed religiously. In spite of it all, my conscience was always in a fever of doubt. And we'll have that on the screen there. That last phrase at the end, my conscience was always in a fever of doubt. With religion, and if that's what you're doing, you will always have doubt. You can never be sure. How do you know you're doing enough? How do you know? Is there an algorithm? Is there a formula? How do you know that going to church is plus one, but skipping church is actually minus three? Did anyone tell you that? You don't know. And you're always going to doubt and you can never be sure. But in the gospel, we can be sure. It's one of the biggest difference between gospel and religion is assurance. You can be 100% sure because Jesus did it all. In verse 16, Paul says this. 
Read with me here. As, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Paul says, when you walk by this rule, what is this rule? The rule of the gospel, that Christ is sufficient, that he has done everything. He says, peace will be upon you. You can finally have peace. You don't have to be afraid of whether or not you are doing enough because Christ did enough. And the question this morning is, what rule are you living by? Do you call it the gospel and do you call it Christianity or is it a departure from the gospel and Christianity? Is it really a different version altogether? Are you making up your own rules or are you following somebody else's rules? The only rule for us to follow is that Christ is sufficient and that by faith we are saved not by our works and that we would boast alone in Jesus Christ for salvation. I want to invite you to rest This morning in Christ alone, set aside all of your working and your doing and your accounting and rest in Christ alone. I do want to answer the question, didn't do good works matter at all? And I would say yes. And there's a world of a difference. I want you to see this on the screen. There's a world of a difference between what people do to be saved and what saved people do. Yes, saved people do things, but not in order to be saved, but in a joyful response to what God has done graciously in Christ. Now that we know that Jesus has done everything, it changes our lives. When we know that Christ has done everything for us, he now becomes everything to us. The second point this morning, Christ is not only sufficient for our salvation, but he is sufficient for our significance. Verse 14, again. But far far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I To the world. This is what happens when you know that Christ is everything. He's sufficient for my salvation. And when you believe that, you understand in Christ, I have everything. I don't have to work for it. It's given to me a glorious inheritance, everlasting life in heaven. Not only does he become your salvation, he now becomes your significance. Paul says this world has been crucified to him and I to this world. What does he mean by this world? He's talking about what this world says is significant. What this world tells you, this is what matters. This is where you find your sense of meaning, value, and worth. Paul says, I am no longer chasing after those things. Those things no longer matter to me because I have Jesus Christ. I'm not going to place my identity in how much money I make or my looks, the kind of clothes that I wear, the the house that I live in, where I vacation, even my relationships, where my kids go to college. I am not going to place my identity in those things. That's all dead to me. I have found a deeper, more sure identity in Jesus Christ. We are liberated not only from our sin, but from a worldly sense of significance when we have Jesus in our lives. So maybe you're in college. 
Maybe you look back when you were in college and you remember when you found so much significance in which college you went to or what you majored in or your friendships or your relationships. Maybe you recently graduated and you're looking for meaning and your sense of worth and value in your career. Or maybe your lack of a career compared to your peers gnaws away and eats away at your sense of worth and value. Maybe you look around at your peers who were once on the same playing field as you and now they're on a whole other level financially, socially, relationally. They're getting married. They're purchasing their first homes. They're having kids. And you, maybe you just broke up with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you feel so far behind. And you feel quite worthless. Because this world is telling you your sense of worth is in your relationships. It's in your career, your salary. Maybe you finished college a long time ago and you've done the career thing. You've done the marriage thing. You've done the home thing. You've done the kid thing and you've done the second kid thing as well. And you're thinking, now what? Akos Balog, he's the CEO of the Gospel Coalition in Australia, and he wrote about his own experience with midlife, and he describes midlife, it's this combination of discouragement, dread, disinterest, dissatisfaction, and mainly disorientation and a loss of identity, a loss of a sense of worth. What am I doing in life? What actually matters? I accomplished so much already, and now what? He says there's also a generalized worrying about aging and death. He read a book that Paul Tripp wrote, who's a Christian counselor, titled Lost in the, Lost in the Middle, which is a book on the midlife crisis. And he's, Paul Tripp says that this is true for everyone who is middle-aged or going through a midlife crisis. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, millennials, they say, are actually facing their own midlife crisis much earlier. So this applies to even the younger generation here. He says, this is what they all share in common. You realize that you are aware that your life has not worked out according to plan. And that hits you really hard for the first time. That your life has taken twists and turns that you could have never imagined. Some of those turns have left you amazed and thankful, while others have caused profound pain and loss. But either way, life is not panning out the way that you planned. And you're hitting an age where you realize, I'm not young enough anymore where I can still make changes to my life and still fulfill those dreams kind of too late for that. I'm too settled down. I have too many kids. I'm too busy. And maybe it's this sobering acceptance of, is this going to be my life the rest of my life? But according to Paul Tripp, he says that the crisis of midlife is essentially a problem of interpretation, that we had the wrong interpretation of life. That is that rule that Paul is talking about. The world that he is talking about. Paul Tripp asks, are we going to let the gospel interpret our lives? Or are we going to let 
the world interpret our lives. Akos Balog, he says this, and read with me here. Looking back, I had let a secularized view, which is a non-gospel view of reality, frame my experience of midlife, which is why I felt so fearful and starved for meaning. We live in culture that celebrates, nay, idolizes youthful beauty and dreads growing old. It's not surprising that Christians get caught up thinking in the same way. I get caught up thinking in that way. We all get caught up thinking that way. We, we drink the Kool-Aid and we got drunk on it and we forget that there is a gospel where we're supposed to find our true meaning. And we're starved for meaning and we go looking for it. And one thing after the other after the other. We are always in danger all of the time of letting a secularized non-gospel framework define our identity. Paul Tripp makes this very clear. Even if your dreams come to fruition, they will not fulfill you. And that is true. Even if you get everything that you wanted, you will still be disappointed. He says, as you look forward to the years to come, remember that Christ is your identity. That's something we have to preach to ourselves every day. He is sufficient for my salvation and also my significance. Look forward to what Christ has accomplished for you and what he will offer you in eternity in heaven. I think moms also struggle with identity. I'm not a mom. I never will be. And I don't understand motherhood. I don't claim to be an expert. A seminary professor named David Prince, he wrote a brief article about motherhood. And you may be thinking, what does he know about motherhood? He's a dude. And he'll be the first to say he doesn't know much either. But his eyes were open to the particular the particular challenges in motherhood. And we have so many moms here at CCSC and we love our moms here. And reading this article, I realized, man, there is a unique kind of struggle. It is a sacred calling, but it also comes with a unique kind of struggle that I will never understand. And he writes about this. And he says, the cultural expectations regarding what it means to be regarded a good mother today, he says, they're mind-boggling. The pressure for stay-at-home moms to have a career and compete in the world to be considered a real woman. In other contexts, there's pressure for working moms to be stay-at-home moms at all costs. Moms are told that they should have her kids involved in all kinds of activities, provide many diverse life experiences, and be a really, to be a really good mom. A good mom is expected to be up-to-date in style, always fit, and the kids should eat only super healthy foods. He recalls an occasion when he overheard one mom speaking to another group of moms saying, I can't believe those moms let their kids eat McDonald's. For the record, I totally agree with that. Moms, you should never let your kids eat McDonald's, especially when there's an in and out right down the street. But there's this ridiculous kind of pressure put on moms. I want to read what he wrote here for us. Look, David Prince. Many mothers fall into the trap of evaluating their daily grind and realities against the highlight reel of other people's lives they see posted in pictures on Facebook. 
any or all of the things on the list in the previous two paragraphs are fine. But as a job description to evaluate whether or not you are a good mom, they are a curse, an ungodly burden, and a path toward discontentment and misery. In fact, when embraced as a means of motherly self-justification, they are satanic. And he goes on and he says this. When a mother is focused on the gospel as the center and goal of her life, she knows that she is going to fail in mothering her children in many ways. But her failure reminds her of how much she needs Christ and must rest daily in her identity in Christ. A gospel mom has to have the courage not to fear and bow before the culture's expectations and mothering idols because she believes there is someone more important Jesus Christ. One last way I want to share that we may bow to the cultural expectations in this world. Especially nowadays, this world tells you you're, you need to find your identity and your sexuality. That is your fundamental identity. Your sexuality and your sexual orientation. I want to share about one former student of mine when I was in Pittsburgh. When he was a senior in college, he shared his testimony, story of grace to the church. And he talked about how when he was a senior in high school, he was attracted to one of his best friends, and it was a guy friend. And when his guy friend did not reciprocate, he was devastated, and he was broken, And he was depressed. He said he contemplated suicide on a daily basis. He hated life. He wanted to be attracted to girls. But he was attracted to guys. He tried to find happiness through partying and alcohol. He said it was suffocating as if he couldn't breathe. He said after watching the movie Moonlight, which is a message that you should follow your feelings, embrace your sexual identity, and be proud of that. He felt like after watching it, he had to make a decision. And that choice, he said, gave him so much pressure. Again, he was depressed, considered suicide on a daily basis. He said the night before he watched the movie, he was walking to a restaurant with his friends and he passed by our church when, when I was in Pittsburgh. And he told himself, maybe I'll check it out someday. And so the day after he watched the movie, he actually attended church and praised the Lord. On that Sunday, he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And he was saved. Christ was sufficient for his salvation. But let me tell you what didn't change. His attraction. That didn't go away. He was still very much attracted to the same gender. And it was something he, he wrestled with because the world, especially nowadays, he knows maybe better than any of us is telling him, just be yourself. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Embrace it. Live it out. Why would you just internalize that? Now is the prime time than ever before. but he's trying to live faithfully to what scripture is teaching him. That he will never find true happiness 
He will never be fully satisfied by pursuing sin, living out his attractions. And even to this day, he is a believer. He is saved and he is fighting that good fight. He said that the gospel taught him the difference between happiness and joy. Learning to delight in God and being satisfied in him and to glorify God according to the Bible, not according to the definition of the world. And I want to read what he wrote. He said this. To me, the gospel also means my new identity is in Christ. My identity is not in my sexuality, how I look, how I walk, how I talk, but in Jesus Christ alone. Whether he wants me to live a life single and celibate or with a wife and family, I know that God only has plans to prosper, be never to harm me, and that if I have Christ, I am satisfied. I, now, I know now it, was, it wasn't a matter of choosing between gay or straight. My only option now is to follow Jesus. And I am fully guaranteed that this new identity that turns evil into good, wretched into beautiful, unworthy into justified, will not forsake me. He learned and he is still learning what it means that Christ is sufficient. So whether you're wrestling with your career and looking for your significance there, relationships or, or money or appearance or things and possessions or maybe even your own sexuality, we are all here this morning learning what it means that Christ is sufficient. And the Bible doesn't lie. And God doesn't lie. And it's my encouragement and exhortation that together as a church, we would pursue Jesus all the more, run harder after him. Praying, God, don't let me buy into the lie that this world is telling me. Let me taste and see that the Lord truly is good. And that we would say with Paul, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would enlighten our eyes so that we may know what is the hope that we have in Christ and the immeasurable riches we have in him. Would we boast only in the cross of Jesus for our salvation? And when we only boast in him for our significance as well. Fill my brothers and sisters here with a deeper hope and a deeper joy as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.